Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. But actually, our, our data are actually expressions of our, in a sense, our life force, right? Like our data are, are what are being, you know, spat out about us at all places and all times, essentially, even if, even if it's not on our phones, it's being triangulated on other systems. Um, so we have to kind of think about data as an expression of ourselves as human beings. And how do we kind of, A, understand that and B, protect that as a right I think that's something I'm trying to work on with multiple members of Congress, um, you know, kind of conceptualizing data as a, as a right. forward, UCLA professor and author of Beyond the Valley, one of the experts on tech's impact on us and our lives, Ramesh Srinivasan. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Forward podcast, author of Beyond the Valley, UCLA professor, surrogate for Bernie and Joe and Kamala. I don't know how we pulled that one off. One of the foremost experts on technology's impact on our society, Ramesh Srinivasan. Welcome, Ramesh. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to join Forward. Yeah, we're psyched to have you. So, uh, tell us a little bit about how the heck you came to be one of the world's leading authorities on technology's impact. You, uh, you know, came up as a student. Uh, you got your PhD. Like, when did you become uh, passionate about this? So I studied engineering at Stanford in the late 1990s. Right, we remember that time. We're around the same age, Andrew. You know, and I, and in the late 1990s, um, as some of us may remember. There was a lot of buzz in within Silicon Valley, and Stanford was very much like a hub. Of Do you school. know any of the famous people then who were your classmates I mean, around then? Was like Jerry I mean, Yang down the hall and stuff like that? I mean, that? I some of the PayPal founders were my in my, my classmates. You know, definitely people who were early in, you know, early at Google, Facebook, etc. Were classmates of mine. We were all in Terman Hall in the engineering school together, and you know, I Andrew was actually when I entered college was inter- and quite interested in philosophy, religious studies and art. Um, having, you know, first generation Indian American parents, they, they told me, look, like, that's all great. We love that stuff too, but major in engineering or science or medicine. So you can be, so you can make sure that you'll have a job after, after college. So 
That sounds familiar, Ramesh. I feel like maybe your parents and my parents are speaking from the same book. Um, so you went to Stanford as an undergrad. Where did you grow up? Also in California? Right in the Bay Area. I went to the same high school as uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, Homestead High School, right near Stanford. My dad was a faculty member at Stanford. I almost went out to the East Coast. I was really attracted by liberal arts colleges. I almost went to Brown, except my dad said that uh, we don't want you to go to Brown because they don't give letter grades there. I don't know if that's true or not to this day. It can be true if you want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is a true fact about Brown. So not to uh, make it seem like you and I were counterparts, but uh, I was choosing between Stanford and Brown and would have gone to Stanford if my brother had not chosen to transfer back east uh, from Berkeley at the same time. So I sometimes think about the path not traveled where if I had gone to Stanford in the mid nineties, would I have become, uh, tied up in the internet boom of the next number of years? Probably not because like you, I was interested in philosophy and writing. Uh, I started out as an English major is one thing and I switched off pretty quick from that after I read like Mole Flanders or something. It was like, this is not what I need to be studying. <laughs> so I switched to <laughs> economics. Um, but, uh, you know, it's possible I would have been uh, caught up in the Internet boom that that transpired, whereas you were an engineering student. Uh, so you were in the thick of it. Absolutely. Yeah, I was I was applied math and industrial engineering. And then I worked in machine learning and AI. But the entire time, Andrew, like I was taking classes in the social sciences, both quantitative, like social network analysis, as well as, you know, anthropology, philosophy you know, art, history, uh, literature courses, because, and I'm so glad I took those classes. I'm so glad I'm still kind of the way I was back then in a lot of ways, um, because I was really interested. Ultimately, my interests are always in humanity, in, 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 our, in our species and our planet. And that's something I actually have always cared about way more than anything technological. Obviously, technological interests or uh, literacies in technology are critical to understanding uh, our life chances as human beings at this point in time, right? So on every single level, I feel super grateful that I kind of came up in that world somewhat accidentally. Uh, I'm very, very familiar with the tendencies of people within Silicon Valley, the ways a lot of engineers function, having had, I also went to MIT Media Lab for grad school. So I saw this firsthand and I always saw a profound disconnection between, and, and it's partly our educational system, uh, between the world of engineering and the worlds that our engineering were going to impact. And that's partly because, again, as engineers, we weren't really trained to think deeply about you know, political questions, social questions, cultural questions, economic questions, Definitely not global questions. <laughs> wow, you've really got the programming down pat. Um, so I, I, again, I'll, I'll share this with you. Where the, 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 a lot of people know this about me. So my uh, father and mother met as graduate students at UC Berkeley. My father got his PhD in physics uh, and generated 69 U.S. patents. My mom wow. uh, got a master's in math and statistics. So I grew up very, very geeky and nerdy around folks that I thought everyone did something in a lab as a job, stuff like that. Um, and in my case, I uh, went to high school and college in New England and uh, studied economics and political science and philosophy and American civilization and a bunch of other things that I just found interesting. Uh, and then I went to law school, which is its own kind of coding and programming. 
Um, and then I was a lawyer very, very briefly and then left and then did a bunch of different things. But what, what's interesting is that I feel like my multidisciplinary uh, approach is that like I feel like I get what ordinary people are experiencing maybe to a slightly higher degree than than like some other folks who've had similar rearing. Uh, but I have kind of like a structured thinking engineering mindset to the problems that we have. So when, when I uh, wrote my book, The War on Normal People, it was like, okay, AI automation, it's coming, it's going to get it. But my, my big challenge in many ways, Ramesh, and uh, you know, I think you can relate to this struggle in many ways, was that I had read books by technologists uh, like Martin Ford and uh, right. Eric Brynjolfsson and whatnot, right. who'd written very effective uh, books, uh, Rise of the Robots and the Second Machine Age. Uh, and I thought, okay, my value add is going to be that I'm going to translate these things that they're talking about to what's going to happen to ordinary people. Wow. Uh, and so I remember talking to my editor and he's like, what's the name of this book going to be? And I said, The War on Normal People. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, well, I like it. It's provocative. It's sensationalist. So I feel like you're similar in that you understand the engineering brain down pat. I mean, you have it. You grew up among it. You got the degrees and credentials. And yet you still have this kind of humanist impulse where you're trying to bridge the world of technology and what it's going to mean for ordinary real life humans. Is that fair to say? I'm absolutely a humanist on every level. I believe deeply in the question that we should be starting and, and with the question of how do we want to live as human beings? How do, we, how do we want to live as Americans? What kind of world do we want to live in? That's the question that should guide everything, whether it's technological, scientific or otherwise, right? And that love of of, of people and our planet, which I really have, it's a really like personal, emotional, you know, almost spiritual kind of thing for me, came because I've traveled all over the world. I worked in AI in Amsterdam. I've worked in over 30 countries, Andrew. I've worked with a range wow. of different kinds of communities in this country. Uh, I've worked with immigrants, with refugees, with Native Americans, you know, on so many different levels. And so my I would say my skills are far less as an engineer, though I do know how that mind works and more as someone who can work with people, understand what they what they wish, what they want, and build with them, right? And so I would like to introduce that vision into where we go with this digital revolution. You had more sophistication than anyone else I saw in the 2020 campaign in discussing these dynamics and these issues. You know, I was trying to bring some of that, honestly, into uh, the Sanders campaign because I knew he, he was all about you know, the right, the right things, the right, the right values. I mean, I trusted him so much. Um, and, and honestly, it's, it's time for us to ask these big questions and make decisions in the collective interest rather in, rather than calling this out or that out, right? This, as you, as you kind of are with this for, with the forward party, it's time to move forward and make decisions together that are critical about the future of data the future of AI, the future of surveillance and kind of data privacy issues. Where do we want to take this digital world? Because the digital world, as we know all too well, as you know all too well, is not simply about using social media or an exceptionalized example like Facebook. The digital world is in everything. When we get bank loans, we go to the hospital, the police department, the criminal justice system, or the lack thereof, in my opinion, they are all mediated by technology, data, and technology. So any decision about our collective future 
it's partly a question about technology and where we want to take it. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So you've worked all around the world and the country with different communities. Uh, you've been studying these problems for the last number of years. Uh, what has been the focus of your research at UCLA this last number of years? Well, a few different issues. So first of all, I'm very interested in digital rights, right? So recognizing that in a sense, our data is not merely a, a piece of property or a commodity like my colleague um, uh, Shoshana Zuboff writes about, but actually our, our data are actually expressions of our, in a sense, our life force, right? Like our data are, are what are being you know, spat out about us at all places and all times, essentially, even if, even if it's not on our phones, it's being triangulated on other systems. Um, so we have to kind of think about data as an expression of ourselves as human beings. And how do we kind of, A, understand that and B, protect that as a right? I think that's something I'm trying to work on with multiple members of Congress, um, you know, kind of conceptualizing data as a, as a right. Um, secondly, I tend to work quite a bit on thinking about how we might design and think about technology in relation to different kinds of communities in our country and in our world, recognizing that many different communities have different sorts of needs and values and belief systems. And we have to think about how we design things like in the rollout of internet networks, mobile networks, but even platforms in that way. A third real issue that I'm really focused on, and I have been for over a decade, is the relationship between digital technologies and various forms of people's-based democracy, right? I know this is something that you've been kind of talking a lot about. Um, so I, 10 years ago, was in like in the middle of Tahrir Square. I don't know if I told you about this yet. I was waiting no. for Al Jazeera. I was there for three years, three summers, writing about the relationship between social movements and social networks and, and digital technology. 
Um, and then the last thing, and I think this is actually probably the biggest spillover of our digitally mediated world and economy is the effect on economics, right? And this is something we talked about before, Andrew. 25 million jobs in the digital vein that are going to be created within the next five to 10 years. Gig economy work seems more precarious than ever. I have students at UCLA, one of the top universities in our country, who are in massive amounts of student debt and are driving for Uber, working for Postmates. These are huge issues, right? Like, how do we deal with, you know, this kind of unequal economy that is being facilitated and amplified and accelerated by the way technologies are being rolled out right now. And, you know, universal basic income we've known as you advocated for more than anyone else, I think um, is, 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 is good. It's important, but there's a slew of other possibilities. We've got to put them all on the table, portable benefits, you know, uh, maybe people, workers having different, some levels of equity in, in app-based platforms, data. Oh, yeah, cooperative ownership uh, arrangements. All right. So you're well ahead of the curve. You're writing papers. You wrote a book. Uh, and then at some point you hook up with the Bernie campaign. How does that come about? Well, I have. Is that Ro Khanna? Ro Khanna reached out to you? <laughs> it was Ro, uh, Representative Khanna I met because I used to do some hosting for the Young Turks who are friends of mine. I tend to take a very sort of like conciliatory and positive sort of view, which maybe is not always the great best for like woke media you know it's a little annoying to be honest i'm more of a problem solver and a humanist well, being right? a talking head definitely messes with your behaviors because it's like oh get a load of this person ramesh what do you think and then you you, you have to you have to be like oh you know i mean i have done it on cnn and so i i know the dynamic well yeah so i so is representative kana and then you know it just happens you know it's so cool like in our lives you just randomly meet people right like i met you through Ty, who works with you, you know, and I, and similarly, I knew Faz, Faz Shakir, who was um, Senator Sanders' campaign manager when he was working at the ACLU, because I was I was really interested in questions of surveillance and privacy in relation to you know hate against Asian peoples, Black peoples, etc., peoples of color in this country, and sort of surveillance issues with that. So I met Faz randomly. Um, you know, and my, I had a couple of friends, including my friend Jane Kim, who went to Stanford with me, was the head of the California uh, for the Sanders campaign, which we won, yep. you know, and so it just felt like this was kind of like my world. It's very surreal to all of a sudden be in your mid 40s and to see like, you know, hey, there's Andrew. Yang your buddies are running this stuff. Yeah. Around my weird. age, he's running for president, like this Buttigieg here. Like it's our like it's our time to take over and show compassionate uh, leadership. So I just want to be of service to people I believe in who can help make this world heal and make it more humane and democratic. So you're working on the Bernie campaign and do they come to you and are like, okay, what are the big policies we need to be pushing for technology? Because Bernie is aligned spiritually, but he doesn't understand tech. I mean, you know, don't begrudge him that. So um, what were the policies that you said, okay, here, here's what you should be uh, integrating and what was their response? Well, my way of dealing with this is I I had kind of written this like long document. I'll, I got to send it to you called like a digital bill of rights. And and turned out that Ro Khanna was also voicing sim similar language, internet bill of rights. And his book just came out, which is great. I mean, I'm honored to be in the book uh, cited right before Jürgen Habermas, which was dope. Um, so 
you know, I was thinking about that. I was trying to send the people like at the, you know, I'm not, I wasn't like a prominent person in the campaign, but I was trying to send all these ideas to the people who were like policy directors in the campaign. Yep. I didn't get very far, man. <laughs> um, I was a little like, okay. Um, but at the same time, I was able to funnel some of those ideas to Representative Ocasio-Cortez, obviously to Representative Kanna. And also we worked on one policy together. I was kind of more in the surrogate role. In fact, one of my jobs was to, uh, you know, try to build bridges with Andrew Yang supporters in the campaign. Good uh, fun. I, I, I'm sure it worked pretty well because the Andrew Yang supporters uh, tend to like bridges, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> um, we did work on one policy that I felt was really cool. Um, it was called the Internet for All program. It was part of the Green New Deal. And what that would do would, incent- and I love this kind of stuff, it would incentivize, therefore creating jobs and spreading technological literacy. It would incentivize communities, you know, in very rural locations and definitely Native American communities to build and own their own ISPs, internet service provider kind of infrastructures, as well as mobile networks. And the reason why I think that's important is when we want to talk about connectivity to technology, it's not actually just simply an engineering question. It's not just connect or not. In the process of establishing connectivity, there are a number of interesting questions and possibilities for people to gain jobs. Like we've seen that in Detroit, right? Detroit like abandoned. Now there's amazing projects like the Detroit Community Technology Project. Lots of people are employed. Lots of digital literacy skills, which are critical in education, happened. So the Sanders campaign was attempting to do that. I had worked a lot with Native American communities when I was a PhD student and a little bit earlier in my time pre-tenure at UCLA. And so I was also thinking a lot about how, how do we set up tribal infrastructure. So one of the good things that happened with this infrastructure bill that got through is it did support, you know, universal broadband, but it's not simply when we use the term universal, do we mean Verizon doing the universality or AT&T doing the universality? Or do we mean universality in the image of people being able to create their own solutions that work for them and their communities? This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now.
So you referenced before that you were in Tahrir Square. What it made me think was that there was a point not that long ago, and you might not have been part of this chorus, but there was a sense that, hey, social media is going to make uh, democracy flourish all over the place because it's very hard to maintain a repressive regime when everyone can have, have access to things and organize. And then people came together uh, in the Arab Spring and toppled various governments and were like, wow, like democracy is going to bloom. Uh, and then that naivete essentially went up, poof, like a uh, <laughs> puff of smoke, like in the weeks and months that followed where in many ways uh, authoritarianism benefited somehow. A lot of the technology-enabled dynamics did not improve things. Did you see that coming? Like, were you someone who was like, hey, you know, this entire facile notion that more internet equals more democracy is not going to work out like people are hoping? I, I called bullshit on that from the start. Um, and the reason why is because there was a narrative that I consider neo-colonial, which is that our tools liberate you, right? And I knew fully well, and we know fully well that, you know, obviously this is great as a sort of branding campaign for Silicon Valley, but we knew even at that time that, that you know, various types of quote unquote personalization algorithms were sending us into echo chambers and, you know, these kinds of, these kinds of terms were known at the time, and some of my colleagues like Eli Pariser had done work on that subject. So I, the reason I went out there was I was super interested, A, in that narrative, and B, trying to actually not debunk it, but try to understand in a real way what contribution, if any, are these technology platforms having in this massive social movement, in this revolution. And, and what I quickly realized it was it wasn't that it's not technologies that contribute to social change. It's what people do with them that contributes to social change. So in, in Tahrir at that time, in Egypt at that time, less about 5% or less like robust internet connectivity, 1% or so of social media connectivity. Those that were connected to those networks were more demographically homogenous, upper middle class, generally liberal, um, more educated. It turned out also the Ikhwan or the Muslim Brotherhood also had robust connectivity and were really the only organized form of resistance to the hegemony of the state. Um, and then there was a very robust labor movement. So what I did is I pivoted around. I interviewed a lot of pretty radical Islamists, Ikhwan people. I can kind of blend in and out of things pretty easily. Um, people super leftist, this and that. And I tried to look at what were their technological practices. And here's what I found out. People were realizing they could use social media to influence journalism. They could influence journalists by basically posting particular kinds of content on platforms and getting that content not just globalized in terms of having people like see what's going on around the world, but also influence people within their own country. Journalists in their own country are, are looking at what these people are posting on social media and remediating it or what we call a media ecology, broadcasting it back onto satellite TV, because that's what everybody had at that time. And that was true in a lot of the Middle East and in India, where I'm, my family's from. That, that, that's a fantastic feedback loop that they discovered. Exactly. They're like, hey, you know what we can get? We can get media coverage. <laughs> exactly. We can hustle this. So I was interviewing people like Ayman Moheldin. You might know him because he's now a MSNBC anchor, but he was like the man, Al Jazeera English uh, out there. And I was looking at what, all, what Ayman was sourcing on Twitter, who he was following on Twitter. And he was, he was strategically following certain kinds of activists who were putting stuff out. And here's the other cool thing that I saw. People were pulling things off 
of on online media, like platforms like YouTube, and projecting it in public spaces. I saw that all around the country. So that had another kind of circulation of online offline. And the reason why that was important was that could actually bring people together to look at some of the documentation of what was going on, some of which was manipulated content, by the way, very propagandist. And people would look at these things and they would just rile them up. So, of course, blind technological connectivity, in a sense, can disincentivize collective action. But certain forms of technological connectivity combined with the use, the, the brilliance of activists who understand their own country, their own limitations, their own constraints, uh, can make a huge change. And so that was really interesting to look at because Occupy happened right after that. And I was also studying Occupy afterward. Yeah, you were right, right there at the crux of history. It's wild. Around the same time, there was a similar naive belief that now we have seen fail, uh, which is that the internet was going to connect us all to the sum total of human knowledge and thus make everyone smarter, more enlightened. There'd be new works of genius because you, you'd be able to access everything at your fingertips. Uh, fast forward a number of years, and it feels like, if anything, we've gotten baser, dumber, more misinformed, more angry and inflamed. Is this also something that you kind of saw coming? Uh, I was with my friend Tristan Harris uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he called it the race down the brainstem uh, because that's the way a lot of these social media platforms uh, operate. Uh, was, was this something that you were concerned about? I've heard Tristan talk about that, and I've talked to him about that as well. Um, yeah, it is because of two major reasons. Well, first of all, on the kind of democratic global level, uh, we never really had that global village because not everyone from the globe was participating equally, not just with access, but also in, in content that was being put out. You know, Wikipedia at a certain point in time, and I love Wikipedia, 95% of its uh, editors and primary authors were male and, and from the Western world, North America, Canada, Europe, and so on. So that speaks to how even an amazing, uh, you know, kind of uh, technology like Wikipedia uh, is actually highly asymmetric in terms of who drives its content. But I really, what we really saw was when this whole personalization thing came up, right? So the way Google functioned is it used a, it, an algorithm which we call PageRank, which basically said, if we're going to rank a bunch of Andrew Yangs with one another, we're going to pick the Andrew Yang that has the most backlinks linked to it. So it was based on domain-based knowledge. What the, 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 the epistemological claim was information that's most credible is most socially validated or socially linked to. So if you notice, none of that involves spying on people, right? None of that involved what, but, but then what happened is personalization became more about Googling us or socializing us on Facebook, right? Like, it, are we Googling or being Googled? Are we socializing or being socialized? Are we using technology or being used, right? There's a sort of dyadic relationship that is unexpressed and under-discussed still to this day. So when they started doing this personalization stuff, what happened is we became Googled. And we became Googled not based on sort of, a, sort of a, some sort of neutral notion of relevance, but based on what would grab our attention. And the way that works, which I think is really interesting, is it's all based on correlation. So you know, if, if you, Andrew Yang, had looked at you know, a million web pages, and I have all this data about your engagement on those different web pages, which we call documents in the information sciences, and then I have very similar profile to you, it will recommend content to me based on correlation mapping. 
It doesn't actually know what content is inflammatory or sensational because we've never really done good AI work yet to that extent, I believe, in text mining. So I'm being nerdy here, but, you know. Please, no, all, dig in. So um, all so it, it can't tell whether it's inflammatory, but it can tell what I'm going to like. Is that a, a fair? Precisely. And what is going to activate and maximize my attention? And we know through and through, and Tristan talks about this, that what maximizes that dopamine release and that cortisol release is outrageous content. We like to, you know, we don't like to get outraged, but when we see the former- But we do. <laughs> we don't like to be outraged, but we kind of do. We kind of do in this country. And the other really interesting point that I just want to make, you know, again, slightly philosophical bent, is what's being fed to us online, which is, you know, in our present world, and which will likely shape our future in many ways is all based on the past. I think that's really important to point out, right? That our lives are being directed digitally based on past data of which we know nothing about. We don't know what data is collected about us by whom, how it's being monetized, none of it. But imagine, right, Andrew, if your past is like over-determining of who you become, right? To me, that's a violation of humanism itself. So what you're describing is why when you Google something and I Google something, we can get different results. Even if we're demographically very similar, even if we're politically very similar, it's no longer about that. It's about the data body. That's the term we use in engineering. We call it a data body, uh, which is sort of like it's a triangulation of all of these different kinds of data points, including data that might not even be gathered again by me on my phone or me intentionally, it might be data gathered about me when I'm walking right down the street and I see that Amazon uh, vehicle right out there. Because those all have surveillance cameras, external surveillance cameras. Yeah, they can get us in the real world too every once in a while. Or we'll do something that says, hey, um, I, I used Apple Pay um, at this storefront. So it's like, oh, I know he was there. I know that there, there's like a, you know, a buying pattern that, that starts developing. You opened by talking about uh, the misuse of our data as one of the main things that you're concerned about. Were you in on the uh, data rights legislation that uh, was fashioned in California over the last several years? Uh, Because California really is at the forefront or the frontier. It's the only state I know of that has a data protection agency, which I jokingly refer to as like data cops. Like they, they should give them some kind of really cool uniform with some kind of futuristic badge, be like data cops here. Uh, and no other states come close to that. Uh, were, were you um, consulted by the legislators who were drafting yeah, uh, those rules? Assembly, folks in the assembly have talked to me and a bunch of my other colleagues. We all... Um, gave input on that. I mean, and I actually have been talking to the New York State Assembly as well, um, you know, where you are, Andrew. So about enacting something very similar. Fantastic. I've been advocating for states just copying California. It's like, look, you don't know what's going on. Just take the California law and copy it word for word. Your, Your people will be better off. Yeah, I think it's pretty notable, right? Even though California is a hub for so much, so many of these technology companies, that there's a sort of robust desire here also to try to balance things out as much as possible. And, you know, Ro Khanna, right, is a, is a congressman for much of Silicon Valley, right? Yet, and he he manages to maintain, I, I really find it impressive, a really both conciliatory viewpoint, birth is in, in his affect and the way he speaks, but also, you know, 
a recognition of the need for um, some significant uh, changes. I like Rokana a great deal. I think he's uh, on top of these issues in a way that virtually no other member of Congress is, maybe because he he does represent Silicon Valley. He's also got the same kind of brain that you you do or I do. It's like kind of this problem solving engineering brain. Systemic, yeah, yeah, not not as not as easily. Uh, inflamed, <laughs> or like, he's a very calm, calm dude. Um, so I started something called the Data Dividend Project um, that was trying to energize people around the fact that hey, our data should be ours. They're making hundreds of billions of dollars a year off of it. It is a human issue, as you say. I do think that it erodes our autonomy or agency. Uh, it turns us into rats in a maze chasing these digital breadcrumbs that we don't even know about because someone's trying to make some money off of us. Uh, you have these quasi states uh, in uh, Google uh, or Facebook. Um, and this was my attempt to try to say to folks, we can do something about it. Uh, the Data Dividend Project does continue to, to do great work. Uh, the EU is ahead of us on this front. And I'm also helping out an EU effort around data unions uh, that are easier to make happen in the EU because they have California-type rules everywhere. Uh, and, and so they're going to end up being a step ahead of us. Uh, that All of that said, I don't have any illusions over the fact that right now I feel like we're losing this battle very, very badly. Um, I, I haven't seen California's rules get enforced just yet. Uh, against some of these mega tech companies, many of which are headquartered uh, in the state. Uh, and some of the abuses and misuses of our data, I feel like are getting more and more egregious all the time. I feel like, uh, I, I think most Americans can sense now when you're getting some random ads or text, you're like, hey, how the heck did they know that I was talking about going someplace warm or whatever it is. Like it's getting spookier and spookier for a lot of people. If you were in charge, let's change patterns for a minute. Let's say that I had won the presidency. Uh, and so now I'm the president of the United States. And then we say, Ramesh, what, what should we do to try and fix the house? Uh, what would you recommend in terms of our data? Is it copy the EU type rules? Like, like what, what would you champion? No, I mean, this is, thank you for asking me that. I, I, I think, first of all, we need to curb certain practices like the retention of data. So like, for example, that certain, the, first of all, there needs to be disclosure around who collects our data, who owns it, and how it's being monetized, one. Two, the, so that's what we call collection of data. Second is the retention of data. So like, for example, should data about me when I was 18 years old still be made available to whomever? And, you know, we don't even know who that is. So that's a huge issue because stuff from the past could be used to influence your future, like I discussed earlier. Third is data aggregation, right? I mean, people don't realize this, but anytime you use your credit card, you're releasing what we call a digital footprint. When you go to Rite Aid and have a Rite Aid card, that's where that data goes. That's why they're trying to incentivize you with discounts if you buy, if you if you use their dumb card or whatever. So it's so aggregation is a huge issue because this is exactly what you know shady organizations like Cambridge Analytica, who Steve Bannon was the VP of that company. Company was funded by Robert Mercer, who's a computational linguist with multiple patents from IBM. It speaks for itself, you know. I mean, and and they were uh, bragging about how much data they had on it on uh, 200 plus million Americans 
uh, at the time of the election. And the reason why that matters is not just because of the creepy way aggregation occurs, that I can have all this data. So basically, who I am at Rite Aid is probably different than who I am on Instagram, which is also different than who I am in another aspect of my life. And part of the power of being human is we get to have our own identity be directed by ourselves in different contexts, right? Like when I'm in front of my students, I don't want them to know what's with what my dating life might be like or something like that, right? It's like different parts of our lives, but they're all being aggregated. And someone like Cambridge Analytica, I think it's useful that that example is brought up because they claimed with all that data, they could establish psychographic models of human identity. So it's not that Andrew, you're Asian American or Ramesh, you're Asian American. It's that you're neurotic around your kids at this time in the morning. They're mapping you as a psychological subject, not in a stable way, but it's like Ramesh is open in this way, conscientious in this way, extroverted in this way. It's called the ocean model. OC, and, and it's a complex model of identity. So these are all things that on, on the level of data and data transactions, they have to be dealt with. But the externalities of this digital economy, meaning the effects that are not simply about our screens or these moments we're online are the real issues, right? The, the fact that you know massive income and wealth inequalities are all being shifted to you know, those who control the drawstrings of technology. Look at the doubling of wealth amongst the 10 wealthiest people in the world many of whom are tech people, right? Bezos, Musk, et cetera, right? Zuckerberg. Um, during this pandemic, we are more technologically dependent than ever before. So all of those sort of pipes uh, are being invisibly monetized and redirected away from us. So we have to deal yep. with digital economy issues. I think we need to identify jobs of the future. Now we need to change our educational system so they can work with those jobs, though, as we know well, education shouldn't just be about training people for jobs, kind of unlike what my parents had told me back in the day a little bit. It's also about what does it mean to be human, right? And that's why the humanities and the arts are more important than ever before. So economic interventions, data-related interventions, and um, and in interventions on, on the level of education. It sounds like you're advocating a national digital bill of rights that includes uh, ownership of our own data uh, and certainly knowledge of who the heck is doing what, where our data is concerned. Is that correct? Absolutely. And one last component that's important is involving stakeholders in the design of various algorithms. So predictive policing algorithms, if they should exist at all, I don't really want them to exist, or facial recognition systems. Groups like Black Lives Matter should be involved in the design of those systems and the audit of those systems, because we know that many of those AI and algorithmic systems have turned out to be racially or gender biased or definitely geographically biased. So that's because, again, not because the people building them are racist or discriminatory. Yeah, you know, it's just the data. You put data into it and then it's just going to end up. Uh, it's the same thing on the jobs front, too. Yep. Yep. I've been reading a lot about uh, machine learning algorithms being used to replace human resources work and how they've been kind of having these biases too. So we got to introduce new jobs of the future. We got to transition full on to the to this, you know, digitally mediated economy right away, which is, you know, digitally mediated economy doesn't just mean screens, it means automated systems replacing Amazon workers uh, whose data is being tracked about all the time, right? So if Amazon is one of our main employers in this country, you know, quite likely that many of those jobs will be obsol obsolescent. So we've got to figure out what the new jobs are going to be as a result. So I have colleagues 
you know some of them, Tim Wu and others who are thinking about these issues. As well. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about Tim. So to the extent the Biden administration has a man on the inside that thinks the same way you and I do, it is Tim Wu, uh, wrote very, very influential books on data uh, like Master Switch uh, and, and some others. Uh, brilliant guy. Um, he's a very, very senior Biden official who's meant to be reining in some of these tech companies. So I'm very, very eager uh, in terms of figuring out what he can get done because it's the equivalent in my mind um, of like having you there because Tim thinks, uh, I, I imagine he and uh, you see eye to eye on, I'm guessing, 90% of things. Um, so what the heck is Tim going to be able to produce from that perch? Because it's not like he has a junior role. He has a pretty senior role. Am I right? Yes. Uh, yes, he does. And, you know, and also the Federal Trade Commission has Lena Khan, who's his colleague at Columbia Law School, who's a big antitrust person. Apparently, Amazon is, has, has kind of petitioned or sent notes saying we're, you know, want to be recused from any sort of activity or action. Not sure where that went. I was sort of reading up on that. I think that, you know, there is a space for some sort of action to occur from Tim and, and his colleagues, I haven't really been in touch or talked to them much. I'm not sure they're even allowed to talk with us, right? I'm not sure if they're allowed to talk to us, uh, Ramesh, but I'm also not sure what we're waiting on. Like, what are they going to announce that's going to make it happen? I know there was some stuff where, like, okay, some of the tech companies are a little concerned that antitrust is going to be enforced differently because of Lena. Uh, now, uh, I was on the debate stage saying, look, uh, the antitrust rules don't make any sense in an age of dominant technology companies, a lot of these markets just flow towards one winner. Uh, and so if you go and say, let's break them up and compete, you're like, well, kind of, but that's not really going to do the trick. And like, you're going to end up just uh, replacing one winner take all dynamic with probably like multiple winner take all dynamics in slightly different categories. Like it's just the nature of the thing. And what I said on stage was like, look, no one's binging anything because no one wants to use the third best search engine because <laughs> all of the data is going to go to number one. You know, Google's a natural monopoly. Uh, Facebook and its products, certainly like an Instagram, WhatsApp, right? Both owned by Facebook, Meta, et cetera, are yeah, no one wants to be on a social media platform that no one else is on. Like, it doesn't make any sense. That's right. It's what we call network effects. There's no point of being on other platforms when no one else is on there. So they might be better understood as what we could call natural monopolies. You know, you as a lawyer know about this. Yeah. And, and so saying like we're going to have them compete doesn't make sense. So really what you need to do is get into the guts and figure out, OK, what are the problems we're concerned about with this particular natural monopoly? A utility-based regulatory model is what my colleague Vipayan Ghosh and I have been calling for. We published a piece in the Journal of Democracy about why we may want to look at these things as utilities now, the, these things being these tech companies and their platforms. And what if we were to look at them as sort of public utilities, recognizing, right, and we spoke about this before, that every one of these tech companies would be valueless without an internet that I guess originally 1969, we, we all paid for as American taxpayers, neither of us were alive then, but uh, that started at Bolter Hall at UCLA, right? So. So again, just like the roads that Amazon monetizes for its delivery vehicles are paid for by us, there has to be a public-private kind of balance in relation to this. So we use a utility-based model, recognizing that these things have to have certain kind of public utility to them and kind of set our threshold definitions accordingly. You can legislate accordingly. And I also think just one quick thing that I think is interesting is how there's bipartisan 
and generally American people, and you know this with Forward Party, like we agree on almost everything. I mean, most priorities we agree on. Yeah, we just need we just need to implement those things. You know, I mean, I know that's what you're trying to do. It's like, yeah, yeah, God true, help man. us. Let's just do those things. And one thing that Americans agree on, and a lot of our uh, elected representatives is that the status quo with big tech isn't good. I mean, and Republicans claim because of free speech issues. I mean, whatever. Okay, sure. I don't quite know if I agree with that, but um, and we and and us progressives like myself, I I I think because I'm very concerned with the ways it's it's um, partitioning and creating imbalances in power politically and economically, you know, and that's what yeah, I, I call it the splintering of the American consciousness. Uh, I think that's the problem that you can get everyone to agree on. Maybe <laughs> if you can get everyone to agree on it. I mean, you know, that it's kind of circular where it's like the reason we can't agree on anything is because our consciousness consciousness has been splintered and by the social media companies. Parties are internally corrupted. Yeah. That, that's another problem is you have uh, two corrupt parties in a corrupt system and then each of them's like well you think we're corrupt check out the other side and then you know there are a lot of people that are like oh yeah i really don't like that other side and then and then if that if you come up and say like hey maybe the lesser of two evils thing is not really the way to go maybe we should introduce a more dynamic resilient sustainable system and then it was like no 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 can't do that can't do that because <laughs> because they're so programmed uh, it's a very it's a very strange thing. Uh, I, actually, not that strange. In some ways, it's predictable. But every time I run into things like this, it's like another reminder. So there are proponents of. Uh, Web3 technologies that believe that it can do away with some of the worst of the abuses you're describing because instead of a giant tech company making a bunch of choices, uh, you can have uh, those choices be distributed among like a decentralized, a decentralized autonomous organization that makes decisions based upon different actors. You can have a distributed ledger so that instead of having a big tech company saying, hey, we affirm these transactions or like, you know, we, the, this is kosher. It'd be like, well, actually, I, I don't really need you to do that because uh, we can all just see it for ourselves if we felt like it. Um, so there are people that are extraordinarily excited about uh, the potential of this next generation of the internet. Uh, an, another group will say like, hey, you're going to wind up with Facebook slash metaverse uh, overrunning the thing in its usual fashion. It's going to invest I think I saw something like, you know, 10 plus billion dollars a year on this thing uh, and, and make it so that it's uh, Zuck's kind of Disney World. <laughs> Truman Show. Remember that? Yeah, Truman Show. Where are you in terms of your enthusiasm and excitement level for the vision and the hopes that some people have for Web3? Well, I think, you know, one thing I want to say about kind of cryptocurrencies and distributed ledger technologies you know, which you are very in, in that world is, I think it's sort of, it is somewhat sad that trust can only be established in, you know, think about the claim that we can only trust one another when we are using a technology that kind of guarantees trust, you know, because it's, it assumes that no one is trustworthy, right? I mean, just sort of as a claim, right? I, what I, what I, I think that, the idea of technologies that can be truly peer-to-peer as the internet was sort of prophesized to be and was definitely in its early stages uh, is, is really important. 
I think that it can allow a lot of corrupt uh, third parties, including those platform providers to be bypassed. But also like, for example, imagine in a country like Ghana, which I, I wrote about in my last book in Beyond the Valley, um, you can actually do peer to peer like things on like land titles, for example, instead of going through corrupt, you know, uh, feudalists, etc. Right. So these issues can be very global in their scale and they can be really peer to peer. The the aspect of it that I really feel is sorely missing is the community aspect of it. Right. And I really, really want everybody to remember, you know, first of all, this is a long time ago, but there was no commerce permitted on the internet, I believe, until like 1998 or 1999, something like that, first of all. So I'm not No commerce allowed. No commerce allowed. I mean, I'm not saying that's what we want, but I just want us to remember that was only like 24 years ago or whatever. I know it's a long time. I vaguely remember the internet of those days. Remember? It was slow and clunky, but uh, it also had kind of a purity to it. Uh, as like a lot of message boards. I, I, I want to ask us, the, I want to ask the question of if we were to transform the internet into something that's more communitarian where we all use this or engage with this as a way to also believe in one another, work with one another, trust one another, what might that look like as a design experiment, right? Like that, what does, is, does that mean we sort of give people equity, you know, in platforms, like even, even partial equity? Does that mean that, you know, this internet is associated with universal jobs, right? It, that's the question I'm very interested. Or if we want to think about digital currencies, should they be state and fiat based, right? Otherwise, they're going to have so much volatility with them, as we've seen, and become modes of, of speculative investment, right? I appreciate the rollout of Web3 and crypto stuff as a certain kind of response to this problematic, troubling situation that we can all agree on. But I'm curious if there is another shoe to drop that can be more about a union, huh? more about all of us coming together. That is really, that larger question is the question that motivates all, everything I care about. People coming together in respect and compassion and trust and support, right? Across our differences. And I know I sound like a total like civil rights hippie person here, but it's- No, really you, you sound like a, a real visionary and optimist, uh, even more so than me. And <laughs> like the inside than me, right? I mean, you've been in political, uh, campaigns. Well, so, I mean, so here's, here's where you and I differ in some ways, Ramesh. I mean, I think you and I agree on most everything. Um, uh, and the, the way we differ is that I look at what's happening in some of these environments and I'm like, whoa, that's like really troubling. Very, very nasty. I have a sense as to how we can make things better as you do. Um, but I, I feel like you fast forward to uh, the way the world should be even more so than I do. Like you take it like a step further. <laughs> Whereas maybe because I'm so exposed to the reality, I'm like, how do we make this less terrible? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you can envision the ideal more naturally than I can. This is the, I mean, honestly, total privilege of being in a university and getting to be a real free thinker and to, and to imagine. And Yes, you're a free thinker. You're like unbound by um, so, some of the very market-based realities that uh, I witness. Yeah. And the other, I mean, I'll just say the one other issue or theme that's so important for me is, is the care of our planet. You know, again, Oh yeah, for sure. But like, remember Bitcoin mining, uh, electronic waste with planned obsolescence in these Apple phones, are they really any different than Monsanto seeds? I'm not trying to gaslight, but like, it's kind of the same logic, right? Well, I I mean, I think 
most people would disagree with uh, planned technological obsolescence. And certainly one of the painful things about uh, Bitcoin mining is this incredible energy consumption associated with it. It's one reason why, you know, there are some other uh, cryptocurrencies um, that don't have that kind of environmental impact, which is something I applaud. We, you know, I've been trying to push right to repair uh, legislation. I've worked with a couple like state assemblies in Michigan and other places to try to get that to happen. One of the coolest things I've seen all around the world, uh, Andrew, is um, I have seen how in places like Kenya and Nairobi, I've seen it in Mexico City, I've seen it in India, I've seen it right here in LA, especially like kind of toward the south part of downtown where it's more like barrio, you know, people are repairing everything, recycling everything, everything is being kind of combined. And what I've seen in like Nairobi or in Addis Ababa and Ethiopia is people taking taking transistors out of like old computers and kind of remixing it MacGyver style with like, you know, with digital electronics. And so I just think that there are these kind of secondary and tertiary informal economies that are really important to recognize that are sort of the offshoot of this digital world. And they've existed, of course, in the in the in the industrial context as well. But I think that, again, the more we can kind of facilitate policies and and give voice and, and, and inspiration to the creativity of people. So here's why I'm an optimist. I really do believe in the creativity and in a lot of ways, the goodness of people. And I've seen it. And I really think that most people are are like that, you know, and I saw you tweet something like that, like yesterday, like there's good people everywhere, something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I agree with you, one, on the power of creativity uh, and two, on the need to build communities um, in multiple ways, which I, I would suggest includes offline as well as online. I mean, I accept that we're going to be doing a ton online, but I, I do think that there's something uh, very intrinsic and human about people getting together um, and forming bonds and connections face to face. Um, I'm, I, I'm also invigorated by some of the things that I, I, I see that are a little bit less conspicuous. I mean, one of the dark things about the present time is that if you go onto social media, like you can get exposed to some very, very terrible things very quickly. And you're like, Oh, <laughs> like, like, like this isn't that good. Uh, it, it's one reason why I, try to keep my stuff really positive because I, I feel like there's negativity in a lot of other places. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and remember also like that world that's being fed to us by a social media is, is likely to computationally select, you know, algorithmically select content yep. that will rile us up. You know, I've been trolled online, not probably nearly to the extent that you have, but I've done it, you know, I, I've had a lot of that come my way. And then I, you know, this is a very personal thing, but I just can, I, I've developed a lot of practices where I can just sort of like, I'm a Buddhist, so I, I can just sort of like sit with things and, and look at them and see like, am I, is this really real? Is this really affecting me? And how do I want to engage with that? Right. And, and in a sense, remember the logic, the computational logic and cadence to these technologies are always on multi-channel, multitasking, and they're, overwhelming and disorienting. I mean, this is literally what Neil Stevenson wrote about in his description of the metaverse in his book, Snow Crash, right? From like- I remember Snow Crash, hero protagonist. What a book. I loved that book. I loved William Gibson and him. And I used to read all that stuff. And it was like, you know, like Blade Runner style a little bit. And then- Yeah, Neuromancer. The, the, those books, wow, were they groundbreaking at the time. Like you read them. And 
most of what they predicted came true <laughs> in some form. Yeah, sci-fi is very helpful as a text. So it's like, again, remembering like, what is it? What do what does it mean to be human? How do we want to live as human beings? And and one thing I'm really thinking about and writing about, I might write a new book that is philosophy based. Well, you should write a new book, period. But continue. Okay, yeah, please. You know, I would love your 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 advice on that. Um, is about how about borders and bordering, right? So like biometric technologies border us because they partition us into data bodies, right? Meaning technologies that are gathering physiognomic input, right? Or, or physiological input. Space now has become this new border for those who have and those who have not. Notably interesting how those who are the most wealthy in the history of the world are so obsessed with space, right? That to me speaks to a certain kind of fatalism and negativity about our planet and its people, right? And, and, and really generally when we want to think about knowledge itself and different cultures in the world, this idea of borders is no long, is not as sort of cutthroats, right? Um, you know, in the world, who gets to move in the world and who doesn't, right? Like why are sub-Saharan uh, African immigrants drowning in the Mediterranean or the way things are in our border here? So you might think like, why is Ramesh talking about all this? I'm really interested in thinking about that in this digitally mediated world, right? Like, so if, if we are to think about technologies, again, that where borders are more about people communicating with one another and negotiating relationships rather than this. So I really want you know, anyone and everyone who's listening to this to work with me on this. Like, I really want, so like, it's not just about reforming or, oh, we got to deal with this problem or that problem, little things here and there, kind of like the way our political system works, this kind of anxiety-driven political system we have. But I want imagination and transformation also to be part of our blueprint. Amen. That's glorious, Ramesh. How can people find you uh, and keep up with you? So I'm on Twitter. I'm not so active on social media for my own like personal mental health, but on Twitter, I'm Ramesh Media, R-A-M-E-S-H-M-E-D-I-A. I'm hoping that I can get on to other podcasts, you know, some of the ones you mentioned to me when we talked before, Andrew, that I can keep sharing these ideas and these visions. Um, people can take a look at my book, you know, which I wrote as a crossover book. I wrote it with MIT Press, but I really tried to write it like a journalist. That was a great exercise for me. It's called Beyond, Beyond the Valley. Valley. Yeah. And that was a real honor to write. I wrote a little about you and dividend about the dividend programs and universal basic income in there. I talked to Michael Tubbs, who had been running those UBI experiments. Great guy. And yeah, I met Mike like almost 15 years ago at a TED conference and he was like 22 or something. And, um, you know, it's, it's, and I think more than anything, I just want people to know, like I'm, I want to, I'm like inspired and excited. And so, you know, you, I'm not like some kind of elite who won't. He's really not people. Uh, Ramesh is a beautiful human being uh, and a true positive visionary. Uh, so Godspeed, Ramesh, you and I will just keep on fighting for a brighter future. And with someone like you, uh, helping show us what it can look like. We have a much better shot at getting there. I hope so. You know, I mean, we're all in it together. That's the thing we got to remember. We're actually all in it together, right? Hasn't the pandemic shown? We are all in it together. We're all in it together. And we got to gotta just- We got to come together and pull together and try and get some real uh, solutions across the table. We sure as hell can do it though. We sure as hell- Amen. Let's go. Thank you so much, Ramesh. Thank you. Such a pleasure and privilege. Thank you for having me.